The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box, episode 24. This week's episode is brought to you by Agents of Cult, Volume 1, Recipe for Destruction. The creators of Mercury and the Murder and Tales of the Cornerstone bring you the centered order of law and technology, Cult, a paranormal science defense organization protecting the universe from evil and villainy of all sorts. Read the adventures of Commander Milo and his Agents of Cult Assault team along with the action-packed outer space excitement of Black's Danger in Space. This can be yours for only $6.99 at DCB Service and HeroesCorner.com. And everybody who purchases a copy will receive a free head sketch by artist Andrew Charpar. Agents of Cult, Volume 1, Recipe for Destruction, on sale now at DCBService.com and HeroesCorner.com. Welcome back once again to the PKD Black Box. I'm your host, Sean Pryor, a.k.a. Stan Leroy. This week's show, Steve Bryant, creator of Athena Voltaire, stops by as we talk about Athena Voltaire uh, creating comics, uh, his uh, project Kickstarter uh, fundraising program for his latest Athena Voltaire book, and all types of things. It's a great conversation. It's probably one of our best interviews to date so far. And then afterwards, Donnie Salvo stops by as we talk about some old-school Teen Titans comics and Teen, Teen Titans history and just random talk in between. Really hope you enjoyed this episode. I had a lot of fun putting this together. But before we go there, I got some things that I need to talk to you about. As many of you are well aware, uh, Saturday, May the 1st, was uh, Free Comic Book Day, and PKD Media kind of had a little grip on things on a Free Comic Book Day. We were positioned out in Las Vegas as well as out in Pennsylvania. Now, how were we able to do that when we are just this little small press company? Well, let me tell you what we did. My homeboy, Jason Grice, our marketing director who lives out in Las Vegas, uh, worked out some things with Comic Oasis in Las Vegas, and we were able to have a table for Free Comic Book Day out in one of the busiest comic book stores in Las Vegas, Comic Oasis. Um, We had free copies of our um, PKD Media Presents Volume 1, the former anthology title that we used to publish. And we gave those out as kind of a teaser to everybody to let people know what we are capable of doing and what we've done since then. Because since the end of PKD Media Presents Volume 1, we've taken Mercury and the Murd and given them their own title and Agents of Cold and given them their own title. We've got more stuff coming out this year and next year as well. But we want to give out those books as proof that we do put in work, we do great work, and... Um, you know, we just wanted to gain people's trust. We unloaded 50 copies of PKD Media Presents Volume 1 in an hour and a half on Free Comic Book Day. It was fantastic. I got the news from Jason Grice. He was thoroughly pleased. Uh, the owner of, uh, of Comic Oasis, Derek Taylor, he was thoroughly pleased. Everybody had a great time. It was just a wonderful occasion. They got to take a look at our Mercury and the Murder trade, our Agents of Cult trade, um, which hopefully we're trying to work out uh, getting those books inset comic book stores in Las Vegas like Comic Oasis, and if that goes down, that's a big deal for us. So keep your fingers crossed on that. Now, over in Pennsylvania, my homeboy Chad Saccone, who was the artist for Mercury and the Murd, was at New Dimension Comics doing Free Comic Book Day, where he had copies of Mercury and the Murd, one of our original Mercury and the Murd books, uh, which was just a collected edition of the Cosplay Order of Doom storyline. And he did free head sketch, he did free sketches, free sketch cards, and he also did regular sketches as well. And he was busy from sun up to sundown. He had a fantastic time. 
Um, he definitely did a great job. He spread the word of what we're trying to do out there as well, as well as giving art to the kids and comics to the kids. And that's always a good thing. And that always gets me hype. And I want to thank Chad and Jason so much for being participants in Free Comic Book Day, for getting out there and spreading the word, not only about what they do, but just for everything, you know, we're trying to do for comics and for art in general. I think it's beautiful. I think it's wonderful. I'm going to start working on things uh, for Free Comic Book Day here in my hometown to see if we can spread the word here in our hometown as well. And before you know it, one day we'll just be global. But we start small and we just work our way outwards, and we just spread that love. So keep your fingers crossed for us. But thank you to Jason, and thank you, for ch thank you also to Chad for making Free Comic Book Day a glorious day for PKD Media. Steve, here's my first question for you. Um, I, I got a I got a good list of questions, but my first my first question is: Where did you get your start, or what inspired you to hop into the world of art? Well, like the first comics I started reading were like Sergeant Fury comics, and then I, I later graduated to, you know, some of the Marvel stuff. Um, uh, like I, I think probably my first Marvel Universe book was Avengers one twenty nine. Discovering Jack Kirby was a huge eye-opener. I, I was reading Commandy as a kid. Stuff like that really hit it. I think it was probably those things, and uh, Star Wars came out when I was 11. And I, I think that kind of, all of that kind of coalesced into, into per, wanting to pursue art and tell these kinds of stories and stuff like that. And then, of course, you know, for probably a decade there, I, I, was, I took a bit of a detour um, in college and stuff, playing in bands and all that stuff. But, you know, it, it came back to comics and, and art. I know how you feel about the whole uh, Jack Kirby inspiration, because for me as a kid, when I was, when I was a youngin', youngin', I didn't understand the Jack Kirby love. I didn't. I, you know, as a kid, I would look at the comics. I'm like, this just doesn't look right to me. And I think it was around the A when I think I was like around 12 years old, I think, 12 or 13. I was at a comic book store doing some uh, bin diving. And Jack Kirby had done a couple of uh, DC Superpowers limited series. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I saw those and I picked them up and I looked at them. And because I, I I'd had the toys and I, I looked at the comics and there was something about, about that that like really just caught my eye. And I just grabbed them and I just read them over and over and over and over again. Not even thinking about the, you know, the Jack Kirby, Captain America stuff, the Captain America and the Falcon work that I had passed up before when I, when I was younger because I didn't like how it looked. But this is the same guy. And I just fell in love with it. And that made me go back to read all the classic Marvel stuff that he did. You know, and made me like have a, re a proper respect for his fourth world material and and all that other stuff so yeah jack definitely influenced a lot of people well i i think one of the things that like when i when i see kirby imitators or proteges whatever you want to say i feel like a lot of them are missing the boat with just doing you know squiggly lines and square fingers all that stuff and they're not doing kind of the the subtleties of of the dynamicism of 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 Kirby's work. I think that's what, what really connected with me as a, as a kid and as an adult, you know, just there's some kind of power in what he's doing. So, yeah, I, I mean, obviously you don't really see a whole lot of that in my work, but it, it's there on a subconscious level. 
if that makes any sense. Looking at your work, one of the first books I ever got of yours um, was from a suggestion from a friend. It was the IDW uh, 24 one shot. And I remember reading that, like looking at the art, and I'm like, I'm getting like a, like this mad Al Williamson vibe. Well, when I when I was reading it, after I read that, I went back and started reading my classic Star Wars reprints from Dark Horse. Um, you know, because I was just like in this really big Al Williamson mood. It really got me inspired and it really got me hyped. Props to you for your art style. Well, thanks. Yeah, I Williamson, Mark Schultz, who does uh, Xenozoic Tales. And Dave Stevens are probably my three big guys now, but you know there, there's a lot of, of uh, Steve Rude and Paul Galassi, Jim Steranko, guys like that in my work too. I think, but thank you. I yeah, I I just I love Williamson stuff so much. Yeah, Williamson uh, Williamson is fantastic. Now you mentioned Mark Schultz, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Now. Is that the gentleman that also created Cadillacs and Dinosaurs? Yeah, yeah. Actually, Cadillacs and Dinosaurs was the name of the... <laughs> Excuse me while I go into nerd mode here. It was the name of the third Xenozoic Tales trade paperback. Um, but they... <laughs> see? Nerd mode. But they uh, they found that it was a catchy enough name, so that's kind of what they built the animated series and the, the toy line from. And, I mean, those things are kind of a successful translation of what he was doing but you know the actual comics are just gorgeous so highly recommend them i remember when that cartoon came out that cartoon was was on cbs and we never saw it it never aired no episodes no episodes of that show ever aired because our the local cbs affiliate decided to play something else at 12 at the twelve thirty slot and they wouldn't play it at six in the morning or, or like, you know, or beforehand. They wouldn't play it at all. Never saw one episode of the series ever. Um, and I would see the toys in the toy store in our neighborhood. They would fly off the shelves, but never saw the cartoon at all. Always wanted to. And I had no idea it came from a comic. Well, that's sad. <laughs> we should we should always get the, the comic tie-ins happening, right? Oh, oh, yeah. Now, now they didn't have a problem at all a couple of years later on CBS playing the uh, Wildcats cartoon. Um, that you know, <laughs> they had no problem in playing that, although for some reason I remember watching every episode and I just kept telling myself, I'm like, yeah, this is going to get better. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, it's going to get. No, it's not. Stop it. Stop it. So I had to force myself to stop watching it. You have a comic, and I actually have a couple of uh, collected uh, editions of it called Athena Voltaire. Yeah. Now, Athena Voltaire has a very, you know, pulp action feel to it. To me, in, in my eyes, it's kind of like take your, uh, you know, your pulp female action hero, throw in a twist of Indiana Jones, but with more excitement, more action, more danger. Now, I'm not sure if I'm doing it proper justice, but uh, can you tell the people how Athena Voltaire came to be and uh, where you stand with Athena Voltaire at this moment? Well, really, I just started the name because it, it made me laugh. I had to do a, a piece for uh, an exhibition of uh, a park district I was, I was teaching at. And, um, you know, it was like an instructor's exhibition. And I did this, this retro space gal with... Uh, you know the uh, the Adam Strange type fin on her head, and it was really fun. And I I just called the piece Athena Voltaire Space Ranger because it made me laugh. <laughs> and uh, I really liked the name, and I thought I kind of suck at doing like space stuff, so I I couldn't use it as 
Space Ranger, but I liked the name and I thought about what do I like to draw? And, you know, I, I love drawing jungles and, and exotic settings and, and pulp stuff. So I just kind of built a character around that name and stuff I liked. Of course, one of the things that I did was instead of making her an archaeologist, I made her a pilot. I know nothing of aviation, so that was kind of a crash course. Not exactly my, my smartest move, but we'll have those. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the character uh, launched online, I think, back in 2002. That's where we actually earned our, our Eisner Award nomination. And then we went to print briefly at a company called Speakeasy. Uh, they went under uh, right around the time the first issue sold out. And then uh, uh, we landed over at Ape Entertainment. We finished up the miniseries, uh, released a couple of trades. And then my collaborator, Paul Daly, decided to leave the book. So we had a little bit of time with you know some legal entanglements. I did a one-shot with Ape. Uh, last year with Athena and the Black Coat, another ape title that was kind of pulpy. And now it's just kind of waiting while I plow through another miniseries. Now, you currently have your next Athena Voltaire project, Athena Voltaire and the, and the Volcanic Goddess or Volcano Goddess? Volcano Goddess, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, you have that on, on a website called kickstarter.com. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, Kickstarter is essentially a uh, it's a funding platform where like artists and and songwriters, musicians, oh, songwriters, musicians, filmmakers, writers can uh, get people to pledge uh, support for their creative endeavors, kind of like a, a PBS telethon, except you know instead of uh, tote bags and stuff like that, you know I'm sending out original art and sketchbooks, portfolios, hardcover you know, books, stuff like that, with the goal being to uh, fund the next miniseries, which, you know, The Volcano Goddess is, is going to be a two-issue miniseries. So we're, we're looking at trying to raise uh, $7,000 or more. Uh, we passed our initial goal last week. So I think we're right around 7500 But that money will be used, first of all, to uh, pay Kickstarter's fees, and Amazon's credit card processing fees because Kickstarter is part of Amazon. And then, uh, you know, pay taxes, uh, pay to send the, the rewards out to the, the people who pledged. And then the remainder of the money will, be, will go to uh, Jason Malay, who's coloring the book for me, and myself to actually kind of make a page rate while working on the book. So that's kind of, it, it's a really cool site. And I, I highly recommend it to anybody that, you know, has a, a creative endeavor that they want to try to either fund entirely or offset the cost of. Uh, Kickstarter is, has just been great. I've I've been I've been pondering on on, on putting a couple <laughs> and, of uh, projects on Kickstarter myself. And you should. I know it's just for me. For me, it's doing a little bit more investigating on how to properly put it out there to one get people's attention uh, to what kind of incentives can I can can we give to the people that actually take the time out to invest in what we're trying to do and also find a way to pace that out to where I'm not breaking my neck to make sure that like the you know that they get their incentives at the same time don't put myself out of pocket right it's it's a tough balancing act because you want to give um, value for whatever somebody is um, is pledging, because I, I tried to look at it like, wow, what would actually get me to to pledge? And so I, I tried to build the the rewards around that, but it's tough. 
And, you know, after a while, you kind of feel like a, a, a sideshow carnival barker, you know, asking people, hey, don't forget, you know, <laughs> 25 <laughs> days left, all that stuff. It, it, it wears on you after a while, but it's something you, you have to do. Well, you know, we've talked before about all kinds of aspects of, of self-promotion and how it can be kind of a pain. Yeah. It, what, what can you do? Yeah, what can you do? I mean, uh, there's there's no other way to, I mean, for small press people or indie people at times, if the funding's not there to advertise and whatnot. So, you know, the grassroots ca- uh, campaigns are what we're founded on. I think something like a Kickstarter is great, though, because I talk about this a lot of times. I've talked about this word a lot of times in our podcast, art appreciation. Well, with sites like Kickstarter, I think this brings about the return of art appreciation of people that invest in your project or someone else's project um, respects or appreciate the art, the art that you're trying to deliver, whether it be a comic book, whether it be a film, whether it be a web series, whether it be music, you know, a regular novel, what have you. It's this return of the appreciation of art and people actually finding a way to contribute to that. I mean, something like this, you know, is is fantastic. Yeah, I I wish it was only around 10 years ago, (laughs) you know. (laughs) But um, and not only that, but Kickstarter's also spawned off other um, sites that are doing this now. There's a site called Indiegogo, Indiegogo.com. Oh, and I didn't know about that. Yeah, it's just I guess I don't know. I'm not sure how long it's been around, but I've been investigating that as well. So, so that's another site to you know possibly um, put a project out there to raise money for. So it's it's really cool. I I just I like the fact that this stuff is out here now because now. Um, for the most part, a lot of people no longer have excuses. Right. You know, either you do it or you don't do it. Well, yeah, and I, I think I'm, I can speak for both of us here that, you know, in, in doing our comics, we're not saying someone should support it because you need to help me with my dream or, right, or right. whatever like that. We're, we're just trying to uh, tell some stories that you wouldn't get elsewhere from you know some of these other publishers and we're going to try to give you our value for it so you know we're we're, we're going to compensate you for reading the books so I, I i don't i hope it's not perceived as charity or you know a sob story or anything like that because it's really just about hey here are some cool comics that you can actually make a difference to help happen mm-hmm. Oh no, no, and no, I'm in full agreement with you on that. And I don't see it as a as a, a begging or you know pleading campaign as 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 much as it is. This is just another way to make people see that outside of I guess you know mainstream or outside of what people know or see of every day, there's other stuff out there. Uh, you know, they get to see things that they may have not even known about, and they'll get like you know a nice a nice backdrop about it. Everything. I just think it's a great concept. I really do. I think it's an absolutely wonderful concept. So props to Kickstarter and uh, Indiegogo and all you other sites doing your thing. Now, I know, as you said before, they do take a cut, um, a percentage of that. And you also, this is treated as taxable income as well. So so people that use Kickstarter, Indiegogo, please take note. <laughs> this, stuff is, <laughs> this stuff is taxable income, people. Don't blow your whole wad and then at the end of the year, like, oh, I owe this money. You know, do not be a cool modi. Pay your taxes. <laughs> Well, but yeah, I feel like it's important to to say that too because when somebody says, "Wow, seven thousand dollars—that's a lot of money." Yeah, in the end, we're going to have probably between three and four. Mm-hmm. And if you're talking, you know, a couple months to produce a book, it it suddenly it it's still a great amount of money to work with. It's more money than I've made 
on my own independent comics combined for eight years but you know it's not like we're we're swimming through you know scrooge mcduck levels of of cash you know well you know you know how tough all this stuff is yes uh, <laughs> uh self-publishing can be quite the bitch goddess um <laughs> you know it's it's one of those things where you know you you put your heart and soul into a book and you hope that people feel it you hope that people dig it uh, so you can try to make something off of it to build onto your next book to build and to continue to build, grow, keep, continue growing a fan base to the point where it becomes a profit. You, but you don't want to treat your form of art as, as if it's just product. There's always going to be that battle of art versus commerce, right? No, no matter what you do. But you just want to make sure that you can find a way to make this a living, to make this a job. And if I can't, that's fine, because I'll continue to do it regardless until the missus says, uh, Sean, you've been in the basement way too long. You need to come upstairs, see the sunlight, and uh, and take a walk with me. <laughs> you know, but I just love it. I love comics, and I love, you know, media in general, and I just really think that a lot of people just don't understand that there's so much out there, and I just want them to kind of explore that and that's i mean that's why i one of the main one of the many reasons why i do what i do and and i'm sure you know you have a million reasons why you love what you love well i mean isn't it cool that there's some kind of immediacy to what we can do um you know i love movies i love tv but you know you can do a comic with uh you and you know one person yes or you know sometimes you can do it with just one person and uh you know, there, there's no executives, uh, no no suits that have to answer to what you do, no one telling you what the budget is. No focus uh, groups. Right. It's just, here's a, a story, and it's an, it's an immediate way, especially when you're talking about putting it on the web. There's no barrier, and you can find an audience, and I, I just find that to be really exciting. There's nothing like it, or... Or receiving that email or a text message or just communication from someone that actually got a hold of your comic that you wouldn't even have expected to know about and say, you know what, I really dug this. Right. That stuff, that stuff is just crazy. A perfect example. I was at the Pittsburgh Comic Con not too long ago. And as myself and Chad Ciccone, we're at our tables, we're right, you know, side by side. And a gentleman by, name, by the name of Jeremy, who came to the show last year, he told me that he had got... Uh, one of our books, one time we made like a collected edition of some of our Mercury and the Murd comics when we first started. And I'd given some copies to Chad, and Chad um, had them put in his local comic book store. Jeremy told us he bought that book from his comic book store, to which then I looked at Chad and said, how come you didn't tell me this? Because <laughs> I was so excited that someone actually got our book in a store. Had no idea. No idea whatsoever. I mean, that completely turned like my whole outlook for the weekend around. Because someone actually bought our book from a store. Yeah, it wasn't through Diamond. It wasn't through a, a, a distributor. But someone looked at it in the store and said, hmm, I'm going to take a chance on that. Well, yeah. And, I mean, isn't that incredibly gratifying? I mean, it, it's gratifying to make connections through, you know, social networking and comic forums and stuff like that. But when there, when there's someone that, that discovers you without any of that stuff, just comes across the book and buys it on on impulse i that's the best no there, there's no there's no feeling like that at all it's just it's absolutely wonderful and it's just like you know what all that hard work and all the stuff that we've done i'm like okay yes this is paying off keep going that's the stuff that inspires me to keep going every day i i just i just absolutely love it
But speaking of loves, I know you have a lot of love and respect for Dave Stevens, and I'm trying to learn more about the art, more about the art side of comics. I mean, there's one thing to look at a comic and just like read it and look at it and say, "Oh, those are really cute, beautiful pages," or that you know that's a really beautiful story. But I'm trying to learn more about art in general and where it all comes from because you know so many artists come from different backgrounds they got their start here they got their start over there you know some people did graphic design for the longest time then said you know what i need to be over here some people like you know you know, learned um their form of car of cartooning from somewhere else and then moved transferred over to this and that but i've really been starting to look at like um some of the dave stevens stuff and and i might be incorrect on this and if i'm incorrect on this please correct me did dave stevens do the covers for kamiko's jezebel jade he did a Jezebel Jade cover for Johnny Quest. Uh, I want to say issue five, but I, I'm probably wrong. Okay. Uh, but because I, because, the, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, the Jezebel Jade covers were done by, I think, Andy Kubert, although it might have been Adam, but I think it was Andy. Okay. Um, but, yeah, well, all that, that, that Kamiko Johnny Quest stuff is great. But, yeah, um, Dave did a Jezebel Jade cover for Johnny Quest, and he did another one that had Race and Johnny and Haji surrounded by stuff. I think it was called like Guns for the Laughing Man or, or something like that. Okay. Um, but yeah, he did a couple of Johnny Quest covers, which the connection was Dave worked in storyboarding with Doug Wildey. And Doug Wildey is the guy who designed all the characters on Johnny Quest. Mm -hmm. So, And Doug Wildey is actually the... the uh, basis for the character of PV in the Rocketeer. So, you know, you, you can kind of see their their bond and their friendship, you know, with this this uh through line throughout his career. Now okay, now I got it down. That issue that you mentioned, Johnny Quest number five, uh, Jade Incorporated, that yeah. was that was the book that made me go get Jezebel J the Jezebel J limited series. So I have Dave Stevens to thank for that. <laughs> now see, growing up uh, and again, I'm I'm older than you. Uh, I I wasn't old enough to see Johnny Quest when it originally aired, but it was in like Saturday morning syndication mm -hmm. uh, when when I was growing up, and I, I saw all those episodes like a hundred times. And that that show just really imprinted on on uh, my sense of adventure and and stuff like that. I I remember coming up um, watching um, Johnny Quest on. It's like so, sometimes on Sunday mornings it would play as a kid um, growing up and. Getting to see the original version of Johnny Quest, and then you know you watch them now. I, I think even the ones on DVD now are, are completely edited um, to uh, avoid some of the uh, stereotypes and whatnot. But watching the original Johnny Quest, and then seeing the new Johnny Quest in the '80s, and then seeing the further adventures of Johnny Quest that came out in the '90s, it was like three or four. I've, I've seen like three or four renditions of Johnny Quest, and I love them all because they all have their their moment in time. But there's Nothing like that classic storytelling from the original Johnny Quest. It's it's just it's beautiful, completely beautiful. Like you know the the backdrops, the way um, the way you know images are shaded, uh, the action. It's it's got that pulp feel, it, but pulp feel with this touch of like sci-fi, which at the time was just mind blowing. I, I'm still amazed at the fact that Johnny Quest started as a primetime cartoon. Yeah, it, it's just so cool. I don't know. You you talk about the the sci-fi elements. There there's something so recognizable about that kind of 60s sci-fi spy stuff. You know, the early James Bond period. It, it's just a really I don't know. It it it's a neat period. Now, granted, there are some things in there where that are kind of cringeworthy. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, we're we're living in more enlightened times, but if you can get past some of that stuff, there there's just something that that is kind of I I can't even define what what it what it means, but there, it, it's a style of art that that you just don't see a lot of now. No, no, you don't. Every time I think about the original Johnny Quest, I remember the opening and closing credits where there's a scene where Doctor Quest and Race Bannon have jetpacks, and <laughs> Race Bannon has this like big laser bazooka, and like the backdrop is like this fiery red sky. And as a kid, that would get me so hyped. I'm like, I want a jetpack. I want to be an adventurer. And nowadays, I look at it and I'm like. This is why I love writing comics. Seeing stuff like that. That stuff gets me excited. And I just want more people to get excited when they see things like that. Well, can I, can I turn it around uh, to you? Uh, do you, I mean, yeah, sure. you, you always interview people and, and discuss stuff with people. So can I, can I turn some, some stuff around with, with you on, on your take on stuff? Oh, by all means, please. Do. Okay, cool. Like when you're setting out to, to do a script, what are your priorities? What do you want to accomplish? What, what's your, your process? My process has changed over the uh, over the past two or three years in writing comics. Um, example, like with, uh, with Chad Ciccone, uh, artist of Mercury and the Murd. Um, when we do a Mercury and the Murd story, I, I realize now, as opposed to like the first four, first four issues that we ever done, I was telling a story, and there was some characterization, but the characters weren't really that fleshed out, in, in, in my personal opinion. And as time went along, I realized that these characters have to be more than two-dimensional. I mean, there's nothing wrong with me having a book with just two-dimensional characters, but Mercury and the Murd, I want this buddy cop comedy to have some weight, just a little bit of weight to it. Not, not something that's so heavy that it puts you to sleep, but I just want the characters to have a little bit more life to them. I want people to say, well, what's Murd all about? And, you know, why is Beck a cop? You know, he used to be a, he used to be a spy. Why is he now a cop? I want people to understand the reasons and the methods of, of as to the here and the why. Now, writing a script now, the process has completely changed. I remember I used to stress so much, so much about writing scripts because I just wanted the story to work. And I've gotten to a point with Chad when I'm doing like a uh, Mercury and the Merge story. It's kind of like this um, half um, old school 70s uh, Marvel way script style with the touch of what I do. Like, say, for instance, what I'll do is I'll have a, a story like one we're working on right now. I'll give them eight pages worth of story to start worth 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 of story to start. I'll say this is what happens in page one, uh, panel one, two, three, four, five. And same thing on the next page and the next page. And I'll put a little bit of dialogue in between just to emphasize points. But I let him run free with the story. And then we come back in and we fit in and we fill in the dialogue to make the story complete with other stories, stuff like uh, Agents of Cult, which is kind of like, you know, my, my G.I. Joe. It's all about action. Yeah, I mean, it's all about action with a, just like a, a touch of comedy or, or a, touch, a moment of uh, seriousness or clarity to let you breathe. But it's just so action-packed. So, like, I have to change my frame of mind completely, whereas my writing beats on Mercury and the Murd are kind of like, um, I guess you could say, like, uh, rush hour meets law and order. With Agents of Cult, it's nonstop. And so, you know, you have to put on a different writing hat for that. So it's, it's really a challenge, but I love that. 
I, I really do. I hope I answered your question. No, no, you, you did. Um, you kind of brought up a couple of questions and uh, thoughts I had, uh, you know, when, when you responded. There's no right or wrong way to, to tell a story, to, to break it down, to collaborate. And I, I find it fascinating that, that your relationship with Chad has gotten so comfortable now to where you don't have to spell everything out for him and you can let him play to his strengths. Because, well, you know, you look at the really – it's funny. When, when people look at like Alan Moore's comic writing, you know, they look at the, the voluminous Watchmen script and people try to imitate that. You know, this is how you write a good comic script. You you say the camera should be 12 feet in the air and, you know, the room is blue and, and all these extraneous details. But they're failing to realize that Moore tailors his, his writing to his collaborators. Mm-hmm. You look the, and, and see that Watchmen is very different from, from Hell, which is very different from Promethea, which is really different from Top Ten, which is different from Tom Strong. And that's the real beauty of it. So I, I find it interesting that, that you're working with, with Chad in that kind of way, where you're like, I know what his strengths are, and here's what he can do. Right, and see, and, and, it, really, and it really helps me out because it makes me understand more and more from my very first script that I ever wrote, I look at it now and I just like, I kind of like just you know, like shake my head and say, okay, what was I thinking when I wrote, when I wrote this? Um, so like, you know, that, you know, your, your mindset changes. But when, you, when you're talking about the Watchmen script and how people think that that's like the ultimate story or that's how scripts are supposed to be written, I'm trying to make people understand all that stuff is subjective. It is all subjective. Nothing is the end all be all. And and that's the one thing I think people need to really understand about art and writing in general. It's all subjective. Yes, everything could always use a touch-up or a piece of criticism. But in the end, there's no, like you said before, there's no template. Well, you know, it's funny when, when you mention people's uh, perceptions of art and writing. Because <laughs> there there's no... Uh, forum topic that will piss me off more on on a comic book forum than what's more important, the writing or the art? Because I feel like it's the dumbest question because comics you, the, the differentiation between writing and art should be completely invisible. It's always about story. Exactly. Um, like for, okay, for, for instance let's say you and I are collaborating, right? And uh, You've written a script, and page four of the script has a guy and a girl breaking up. The girl's breaking up with the guy in a diner, and your script says, panel one, um, you know, establishing shot, them in the diner. Panel two, the girl. Panel three, the guy. Panel four, the girl. Panel five, the guy crushed. Panel six, the, the girl gets up, and you've written this this brilliant dialogue between them, but that's the visual cues you've given me, Right. Right. Now, let's say on the one hand, I choose to illustrate it exactly the way that you wrote it. It's still an effective scene. Again, because that's that's a visual choice for how to tell the story. Uh, but by the same token, let's say that I took exactly what you wrote, but I broke it down. And every panel with the girl, let's say I, I broke it into two or three smaller panels, so her dialogue becomes more staccato, and it spreads out over the panels. And we're shooting, um, we're photostatting 
shots of her. So it's always a repeated image of her while the, while the story's going on. And then we do the same thing with the guy, and it's these repeated shots, maybe at the same distance, maybe closer or farther away. And you create almost an emotional distance that way. Suddenly, the characters almost seem tired when the scene is playing out. They're dead inside. It's a totally different, different take on the story. Mm-hmm. By the same token, let's say that I take what you've written but I switch it up and instead of panel two just being the girl maybe panel two she's getting up and he's reaching for her panel three their fingertips are touching panel four we see a shot of her face and panel five we again see him dejected we're telling the same story the words are the same but we've got a different emotional feeling we've got almost a a pleading going on throughout the scene or I, I take the scene and you know, draw it exactly the way, the way we're talking, but in the background of those panels, in addition to seeing the guy and the girl, we're seeing a happy couple. And maybe throughout the, the course of this background story, while we see our main couple breaking up, we're seeing a happy couple. She's smiling. The guy gets down on one knee. The girl beams, and they hug. So we're, we're juxtaposing those stories again. And it makes the breakup even more tragic. Or, you know, we're telling the whole story through a window with long shots and we're getting a distance. I mean, every one of those things, then again, you would ask, what's more important, the writing or the art? The story. <laughs> the story is more important. Exactly. Yeah. Because we're still telling telling the story of the breakup. But And I, I don't mean to ramble, but this has been on my mind because I was on a forum where they, where they were talking about statting as an issue. And it, it just drives home the idea that it's not always about the writer saying, this is what we're writing, or the artist just drawing pretty pictures. They should both always be thinking about what's, what's the emotional point. And you and I could do the same story, and you could just say, here, <laughs> here are all the dialogue balloons. I want the mood to be this. Break it down into however many panels you want. And again, it it's always about what is trying to be conveyed with, with the story. I, I, I just love talking about the, the whole craft of how the, this stuff is put together because it's not always about one guy or the other guy making a decision. And that's the, the beauty of collaboration yeah. where, and you know, you can play off each other. I really learned that with, with Chad and with um, Andrew Charpar and with Dave DeWanch, especially, especially more with uh, Dave and Chad because I was really the first – consistent collaborate collaborating i did with mercury and the murd where with chad you know chad was in the beginning was getting his feet wet but with dave dave had been in the game for a while so when i gave dave a script he's like well i he's like i took your script i did this with this panel i did this with this panel and i switched this up a bit and then when he you know he told me that is i wasn't mad at all i was like that makes perfect sense and now, like, the more I collaborate with Chad, perfect example. At the Pittsburgh Com- uh, Comic-Con, we had a little bit of a lull moment, and he brought the first eight pages of our new story to the show. And he did, like, a basic layout. And he said, he's like, you've got this many panels on page one. Maybe on page one we need to cut that back to X amount of panels so we can have a strong establishing shot. And we can still tell, tell the same story in three panels that you put maybe in five. And he brought things to my eyes that I didn't see or didn't really think about at the time. I'm like, this makes perfect sense. And, oh, and, and I love that. No, it, it's so funny, though, because as someone who's now writing and drawing, Steve the artist will look at what Steve the writer does and go, why did you break that into two panels? 
why do you have one guy talking and then you cut to the to the girl talking? Why not put that as one panel? <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because, yeah, you're wearing different hats. Different things are going to come up. Yeah. But, like, to go back to what you were talking about with uh, with Mercury and the Murd, where you're talking about the emotional resonance is, is important. I, I just I, I think that's always a key, no matter how much or how little you're doing. You know, you look at the the old Marvel stuff that that Jack and Stan did, where <clears throat> that scene. Um, I think it's FF fifty one. This man, this monster, where Ben is standing in the rain. I mean, yeah, it's a kids comic, and it, it's it's got you know Stan's alliterative stuff and Jack's. Um, highly stylized artwork, but there's still this emotional resonance where Ben Grimm is trapped in this body. Ultimately, that's that's the core of his story, and that's the emotional resonance you get. And you know, as a 12 year old kid or as a, an adult, you're going to look back at that and say, "I get that." I, I just think you can't stress that that kind of emotional connection nearly enough. Um, so I don't know where I'm going, but I. <laughs> I, I guess I, w- I was just taken by, you know, you talking about that Mercury and the Murd, how, how, oh, I know where I was going. Uh, are, are you familiar with much of J.J. Abrams, uh, like, movie and TV stuff? He's yes. the guy that did Alias and Fringe. Oh, yes, yes. He did a, uh, are you familiar with the TED conference? Uh, no, I'm not. What is the TED conference? They get like a bunch of people at the forefront of various disciplines, technology and various creative disciplines, and they all get up and talk about what they do to produce their stuff and what the future of their their idiom is. I think just search J.J. Abrams' TED conference, but he's up there talking about storytelling, and he has something that he refers to as his magic box, which is always filled with mystery and you never completely open the magic box because you know what's inside it but somewhere along the way when he's talking he talks about concepts and what really works and what always works for him is getting that emotional resonance with the characters and he he uh, had a, a big screen behind him he plays a, a scene from Jaws and it's Roy Scheider talking with his son and there's a lot of quiet moments in this scene and at the very end, if I'm re- remembering right, like Scheider hugs the kid. And the kid says, what was that for? And Roy says, because I needed it. And J.J. goes on and just says, that's what you rip off from Jaws. You don't rip off the shark. You rip off the way the father is with the son and why he's doing what he's doing, why he's risking his life. And it's that emotional through line that carries us through the story. It's not, yeah, the shark is cool, but, you know, if you don't care about the characters, then you've got, you know, Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus on on the Sci-Fi Channel. (laughs) So it's just totally different. And, you know, stuff like that just makes so much sense to me because, like, with the Athena Voltaire stuff, I don't want her just barking orders and being bitchy and shooting stuff and watching stuff blow up. I, I, I want... Especially in the in the new miniseries, my my first that I'm actually writing and drawing, I really want you to root for the character. I want you to care for the character, and I I think the more that you play with any of these toys, the more you're like, I want to explore what's inside his or her head. You know, I I, I think that <laughs> you know, come for the buddy cop fun, but stay for the emotional attachment. That that's the core. 
I think that's what makes me, what you're talking about, makes me focus on my characters in uh, Mercury and a Murder. Perfect example, you talked about Athena Voltaire and how you just don't want her barking orders and, you know, just, you know, you don't want her to be two-dimensional. You don't want her to be flat. Yes, people can see the action, but you want, you know, rationale and reasoning for the character as well so people can feel the whole spectrum of, of her character. Um, in Mercury and the Murd, uh, there's a, a lieutenant. That's lieutenant of the crime unit that Mercury and the Murder are in. Her name's Lori Paint, Lieutenant Lori Paint. And she's in charge of Mercury and the Murd. But um, in the past, uh, Lori and uh, the Murd had a relationship. And you see this throughout the book that, um, that, they, you know, that, they, used to have, that they used to have a relationship. They still have feelings for each other, but they just can't make it work. And... And I just didn't want Lori to to be the the barking lieutenant, you know what I mean? Like, right, right. Y- y- she can be gruff, she can be assertive, and she can be a pain in your ass. But I just didn't want her to be that. I wanted to give something else to the character, and and that was something that I noticed after I finished like our very first storyline. I was like, there's more to her than just being this this rough and tough lady. There's definitely more than that, and that's something that. We've been exploring as uh, time has went along with our, with our comics, and I think it's really cool because when I first started doing this, that wasn't even a thought at all. Now I get it. I understand that, like with this story, you know, she is is as integral to Mercury and the Murder as Beck Mercury and Adam Murder are. So she has a big role to play too, and she's just not the quote unquote chick with a gun. Well, yeah, all these characters have to be doing something when they're not on panel. And whatever experiences they have off page come in, come into factor when we see them again. And the, I, I think that's, that's when it gets exciting when you're, you're living with these characters. And even if you don't explain everything that's happened, you know so much more about Lori than the readers ever will. Right. And that's what, what's so cool because – that, that's the heart of any good story, I think, is compelling characters in extraordinary situations. Right. And, and also at the same time, making the characters compelling and, and like having readers ask questions or at least think about the other things about the characters that they might not know about but may want to kind of assume or think about, well, you know, is this character going this way? Is this character going that way? Why does this character act this way? When they see all that, it makes them want to add more in their minds as to why this character is this way. I think that's great, too. Well, yeah, it's it's just part of, of the puzzle box, you know. Not to be confused with J.J. Abrams' mystery box, you know. He'll, <laughs> he'll get honest about that. But, okay, can I, can I pester you about what your process is? Uh, like a little more nuts and bolts, a little more inside baseball. Um, yeah, sure. Um, now, by process, um, can you give me a little bit more uh, insight as to process, per se? Before I started writing, uh, J. Michael Straczynski wrote a book called The Complete Book of, of Script Writing. He wrote it before he started doing comics, but I wanted to try to familiarize myself with, with the way people do things. And in Straczynski's book, he breaks down all of his writing, regardless of if it's movie, TV, and I'm assuming comics, into index cards of scenes that he wants to, to have in. And he'll arrange them, and he'll play with them, and elaborate on them. And I read that, and I found that to be a really interesting way. It didn't work for me the way my mind works, and I'm not a, an outline format guy either. Mm-hmm. But what I'll do is, like, I'll open up a Word document, and I'll just write page one, and what I want to happen on it. Sometimes it's a, it's a sentence. Sometimes it's 
a bunch of dialogue. Sometimes it's even a, a fully fleshed out scene. But you know, I'll, I'll put in the insert page break and I'll go through and I'll have 22 page word document of what happens on every page of a 22 page comic. And then I'll, I'll start filling in the, how, how it works and maybe massaging the pacing so that, you know, all the beats happen in a logical sequence, but that's the way I do it. It, it grew out of the, uh, the Straczynski index card thinking and applying it to my own brain. So I guess what I'm wondering is, are you an outline guy? Are you a, you know, just Stephen King start typing. It was a dark and stormy night. and Boom. You, you just go through start to finish. Do you work it out in your head? Do you do thumbnails? What's your process? My process is a schizophrenic and, uh, <laughs> no, no, it actually kind of is schizophrenic in, in the sense that I never write a story the same way. You, you know what I mean? I, I never, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say write, but compose a story the same way. Here's an example. Used to be when I would write a story, when I first started writing comics, I would get, pull up, you know, Word, my word processing program, and I would do, like you said, page one, and I would do panel one panel two, panel three, panel four. And how I used to do it, that's how I used to do it. I would say, okay, this story is X amount of pages, so if I, and I, and I would go by panel to tell the story. I would go by panel to tell, tell the story. I would say, okay, you put X amount of panels on this page, X amount on this page, X amount on that page, page X amount on this, on this page. Then I would fill, it, fill in the story in between the panels and then say, okay, this panel is unnecessary. Remove, remove, remove. Okay, we need to put a panel here. And that's how I did it at first. And I would literally confuse the living hell out of myself and just, you know, drive myself nuts. I'm like, no, 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 we're not doing this anymore. So then the process became a combination of things. Um, sometimes I would just pull up a Word doc and I would just do page one and I would just start writing and I would just go. You know, I would get as many pages in as I could, go to sleep, get up the next day and do it again. And sometimes that didn't work. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Then other times what I would do is I would use the postcard. I would use postcards, and I would just like write out the story in postcards, throw them all out there, and just try to pace it out and make it work, and then write a script. Then sometimes I use the outline slash notes theory. And what's funny about this is, here's an example. I'm currently working on our next uh, Agents of Cult trade paperback. We just released our first one. Actually, it's going to be on sale at the time this episode airs on DCB Service and Heroes Corner. Plug. Um, but, uh, but when I was writing for the second volume, I was on vacation, and I literally outlined the entire story from beginning to end, and, and if I missed something, I would go back in and I would add in something in between notes. And I was like, this is going to be really cool. And I got it home, and I started writing a story that had nothing to do with those <laughs> notes. And I was like, you know, I looked at some of those notes. I'm like, oh, that's okay. But you know what? I'm going to start it this way instead because what popped in my head flowed so much better than the outline that I originally had, which wasn't bad. But the idea that popped in my head after writing that was just better. So I said, I'm going with this. And then I said, if I, and if I you know, f come across a stumbling block, I have notes right here to say, well, you could try this or you could try that. So there's no, no rhyme or reason. I do give props to Denny O'Neill for the... Um, the writing comics, uh, the DC guide to writing comics, which helped me out a ton when I got started. It really did. But now that I feel comfortable with myself in writing, the processes are many. There, to me, there's never a um, improper way to get a script out. Yeah, it it's all depending on on what you're trying to accomplish and who you're collaborating with.
Now, I just wrote an Athena, well, kind of an Athena Voltaire short story. It actually is a short story featuring her, featuring her dad that I'll use as a backup or put in a one-shot that um, a friend of mine is illustrating. And for that one, because he has such a great storytelling sense, I didn't want to do it full script, but I also didn't want to do it Marvel style. So what I wrote for that was just, I said, I want it to be... I, I said, I think you can do this in six pages, but it would probably be best to do it in eight. Let me know how you want to do it. And then I just wrote, panel one, here's what happens. Panel two, here's what happens with dialogue and everything in place, but no page breaks. And I, I think I had like 40 or 60 panels just listed. So he could <laughs> – it's an experiment. Yeah. But that way he, he would just go through it and say, okay – Here's where I want the page break. Here's what I want to be the big panel on the page. Here's how I want to shape the storytelling. I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm really excited to see what he does. So, yeah, if that works, I'm, I'm going to try that more often because I think it's kind, of, it's kind of nuts. Oh, yeah. But but the thing is, once again, it's just one of those things. If it works, if it works well for you and it works well for the person you're collaborating with, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. And that's the one thing about this medium that people need to understand. There's no one way to do this. Well, yeah, there there are so many choices you can make. It's it's just exciting. Now, okay, I know that uh, the Eisner book, comics and sequential art, is always told to artists. But have you have you read it as a writer? Actually, no, I have not. Um, um my and I'm not, I'm not trying to call you out. I'm just. It, it occurred to me that a lot of people don't suggest that to comic writers. They always suggest it to artists. And um, it's such a good book. It's so cool about just, you know, I, I like to go back and reread that and uh, McLeod's Understanding Comics, you know, at least once a year just to, to flip through it and go, oh, yeah, I forgot this technique. I need to use this more. Just like the uh, the Wally Woods 22 panels that always work. I have that hanging up at my job. I oh, th those three things, I swear. <laughs> I have the Wally Woods 22 panel, the, the panels that work. We, I have like a cabinet right above my desk, and it's right there looking at me. And I don't draw yet, uh, yet. It, <laughs> it give me some more free time. If I can turn a 24-hour day into a 36-hour day, I might be able to start drawing. But I have that hanging up there. And I also have a quote that um, either Wally Wood said this to Gil Kane or Gil Kane said this to Wally Wood and said, my boy, anyone that can't draw eight pages a day needs to get out of the business. <laughs> I, I wonder if that's a if that's a Gil Kane ism. Uh, some of my favorite Wally Wood isms are uh, "When in doubt, black it out," uh, <laughs> because sometimes I'll put in way too much noodly crap, and I I need to remember Wally's words. And uh, in a similar line of thinking, Alex Toth I, I think always said, um, "Boil everything down to the bare minimum, and then draw the hell out of it." Yeah. So you know th those are good thoughts. Of course, there's the uh, the, the, the other side of Wally, you know, when he got a little more bitter and it was uh, never draw what you can trace, never trace what you – no, never draw what you can swipe, never swipe what you can trace, never trace what you can just cut out and paste down. Hmm. Wally got pretty damn beaten up by the by the medium, wow. which is too bad. But um, that does sound like a Gil Kane-ism. <laughs> I, I remember I saw that and I, I wrote it down before I forgot and I just literally posted it like right above and just look. I look at it every day. I'm like, you know what? And when I get to that point where I start having to take, you know, being able to take moments out to draw again, I want to be able to draw because I want to feel 
what you know what what artists feel you know what i mean so that makes me get a better understanding of writing for artists you know what i mean well yeah and in terms of drawing i know i know there's a lot of people that tend to fall on one side of the debate or the other you know uh, they they love photo reference art. They hate photo reference art. They love cartoony art. They hate cartoony art. And I, I don't view any of them as being particularly superior to any other. I, I think there's a, a wide diversity of, of tastes and there should be a wide diversity of styles. And it's more about you getting whatever is inside your head onto onto the page in the way that you see it in your head. And if that's photo reel find a way that makes it work using reference if it's cartoony find a way that gives it the right amount of exaggeration for where you want it to be and i you know i think if you follow those rules you're you're golden yeah i could i could see that um i'm trying to learn and understand that all all these different art forms that are out, out here nowadays i mean back then when i used to read comics in the 80s and early 90s no one ever defined styles either you could draw or you couldn't draw that's pretty much it for, for me back in the 80s. Now that's the 80s and 90s. None of that was ever defined. And you start to get older and you start to, you know, learn more and you, just, you start to actually see things. And when, you, when you're younger, you can look at them, but you don't see them. You look at them. Right, right. And, and you know, you're older now and you see things. And so the photorealistic stuff with me, I'm, I'm, sometimes I like it. And then there are times where I, it just really just bothers me and I have to push the book away. Hand-drawn art, no matter what style, I'm down. <laughs> I, I'm down. I, I love it because, you know, there's everybody interprets art in different ways anyway. So I, I love that. Speaking of Alex Toth. Yes. I cannot say enough how hype I get. Nowadays, See, once again, when I was a kid, didn't know about Alex Toth, didn't understand what Alex Toth was all about. Now that I'm older and I have some DVDs that have, uh, like, say, for instance, uh, The Space Ghost and uh, Dino Boy uh, Hour, I have that on DVD. I yeah. have the uh, complete Scooby Doo and Dino Mud Hour <laughs> on the, and because and I, I used to love Dino Mud as a kid. Watching it now, sometimes it just drives me nuts. I'm like, will somebody please tell Dino Mud to quit screwing things up? <laughs> you know, as a kid, was, I didn't care. Was Dino Mud the one that was with Blue Falcon? Yes. Okay, yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, I love Blue Falcon and Dino Mud. I'm like, you know, let me write a Blue Falcon and Dino Mud comic. <laughs> it would be awesome. Hear me out, DC. I've got ideas, damn it. I've got ideas. <laughs> anyway, but at the end of the DVD, there are these special features that have the, um, reference sheets character creation uh, reference sheets that alex toth did for dino mutt and uh blue Falcon for blue falcon and dino mutt including enemies and all this stuff and i looked at these designs and if they would have used i mean and they you know they loosely model you know blue falcon and dino mutt and all these characters off of toth's designs they just they they just touched the surface I looked at Toast designs. That got me so hyped. I got up out of bed and like wrote a 14-page story off those designs alone. <laughs> well, and I mean, the, the beauty of it is you can always repurpose that to be your own thing. Mm -hmm. And once you, you start doing that, it becomes less and less derivative because, you know, suddenly you're going to start applying your own mindset to, to Dynamut. Uh, I mean, not Dynamut, but, uh, you know, Blue Falcon, uh, how, however you rename it. 
and then you kind of apply the Roy Scheider in Jaws, J.J. Abrams rule, <laughs> and suddenly it's a different character. Yes, it and is. you can, you know, you're not, you're no longer just doing a riff on Blue Falcon and Dinomot. You're you're moving it into uh, Kierkegaard, which would be kind of disturbing. Um, but no, I know what you mean about like guys that maybe you didn't get as a kid, but you you get as an adult. I remember when Frank Robbins was was drawing Captain America and drawing the Invaders. I hated that guy. I just didn't get it. Uh, he just wasn't. But I later realized he wasn't a good superhero artist. But I saw his uh, his like strip stuff with uh, Johnny Hazard and, and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I get this guy's appeal. I get why he was working. But when I was you know 11, I, w- I was looking at it, just going, what the hell's this? <laughs> Where, where's Sal Buscema? Where's Where's Jack Kirby? You know, and I mean, everybody has artists like that. They didn't get as as at a young age. I did. I didn't get. I got uh, Kirby, but I didn't get Cubert till probably I was eighteen. Mm-hmm. So you I, know, it happens. I didn't. I didn't get Cubert honestly, and probably till about three years ago. Yeah, and once once you understand what he's doing with that that loose gestural brushwork. It's it's lyrical and and immediate and it's super cool. But as a kid, I was just like, it's messy. You know, I, I didn't get it, and that that's fine. The older I get, the more trouble I have, really disliking anything. There there's photo real art that I look at because I use photos too. Uh, there's photo real art that I look at and I'm like, well, I wouldn't have made that choice. I would have rendered more here because you know, the forms flattening out or whatever, but I, I don't want to fault somebody else for, for the way they're, they're using their reference. But you know, I'm, I, I don't know. I've, I've become a lot more accepting. I think that's the one thing that I'm trying to learn because I don't know that much about photo referencing art. To me, there are people that use it, I guess, in a proper sense in order to tell their story. And then there are just people that just swipe. And for me, that's all I, you know, that, that's what I see right now. So I'm, but I'm trying to understand how it's properly used. Like, you know, some people just use it for reference and they're able to tell the most beautiful story that you will ever see. And there are other people where you look at their, you look at theirs and you're like, they pulled that from this. They pulled that from that. They pulled that from this. And, and I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. I don't, I I don't, but sometimes I just see it. And like, it takes me out. It takes me out of the story so quickly. Well, I, yeah, I did a lot more of that back when uh, when Athena launched on the web. I, I got too cute with, I want to use this actor for this character and th- this actor for this character. And after the first story arc, I was like, yeah, I need to do this less. And I've, I've dialed it down more and more. And now when I'm using reference, it's either a model or a friend or I'm changing it up, hopefully, so you don't see it as much. But I agree. It just takes you right out if there's too much. Well, it takes me right out. If, if there are people that like it, more power to them. Mm-hmm. Because, again, I don't want to put judgment calls on it because what this artist or that artist is seeing in their head, it might have to look this way. <laughs> look at me. I sound all hippie love fest there. <laughs> no, you don't. You're fine. There, people will be able to see you at the Summit City uh, Comic Con, correct? Yes, sir. All right. And also online, where can people find you? Um, let's see. I contribute to a uh, comic art blog called Comic Twart, 
Uh, we started as comic, you know, it, it was a bunch of guys that artists that met on Twitter. Uh, and that's at comictwart.com. And then uh, my own personal personal art blog is atomictiki.blogspot.com. And um, the Athena Voltaire campaign, do you mind if I give that one? You sure can. Go to kickstarter.com and look through the comic pro- uh, projects or just uh, Google Athena Voltaire Kickstarter. And that'll take you right to the site. It's a really long URL otherwise. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, if... Uh, if you want to try, you know, get familiar with the book, it's 1930s globe-trotting aviatrix fighting Nazis and monsters. So You can't go wrong with that. That's what I think. <laughs> and now you'll be at Summit City as well, right? Yes, I will. Uh, now, how, how is PKD going to be representing there? Um, just you or it, it, who, it, it, who's it, with you? It would just be me, and I'll have a couple of books. I'll have uh, The Mercury and the Murd, uh, Volume 1, Collateral Damages. I'll have Agents Occult, Volume 1, Recipe for Destruction. I'll also have uh, some uh, sneak peek, mini comic versions of uh, some comics that we're coming out with later on this year and next year. So have a little bit of everything uh, for the people and uh, free soundtracks uh, for Mercury and the Murder and Agents of Cult uh, when you buy a book. Because awesome. that's, that's what we do. So, uh, so yeah, it's going to be a great time. And I can't wait to see I can't wait to see you and see everybody else there. Oh, you and me both. I'm, I'm psyched. Most definitely. Very, very cool. Steve, I thank you so much for your time. I'm going to have you back on the show because you just got me all hyped talking about Alex Toth. I'm about to go watch my <laughs> Space Ghost DVD right now. Any anytime, anytime you want to do it, I, I I love talking about all this stuff, and I had a blast. Cool. Well, thank you, Steve. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Oh, you're welcome. I am doing great because you know what came in the mail today. What, what came in the mail today? Classic G.I. Joe volumes have on. <laughs> uh, ninjas aplenty. Ninjas and knee pads, bitches. <laughs> you are a nut. I but got, you know what? Oh, I just got to tell you this, dude. But you know what that means. What? That uh, my already large uh, stack has is just going to keep accumulating over until I'm done with this because I'm not reading another thing till this is done. <laughs> yeah, knowing knowing you and your love for GI Joe, yeah, no, no question. Hey, did you hear? Speaking of which, did you hear about the GI Joe Forever series that's supposed to be coming out? No. What is this? Oh boy. Okay, <laughs> check this out. Um, you know, Free Comic Book Day. There's an issue of GI Joe, and it takes place. The numbering starts where the uh, Marvel series ended. So like, oh, yeah, it's like 155 and a half or something? Yes. I think I ordered that. Okay, well, good. I'm glad you did, because it's written by uh, Larry, Larry Hama, or, <sighs> or Hama. Is it Hama or Hama? Sure. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to disrespect the man. You know, he, he brought me, you know, one of my childhood joys, so I want to make sure at least get get the brother's name right. I, I've heard Hama. Okay. Well, supposedly, I guess that free comic book day story still takes place in the, you know, the Marvel Universe, G.I. Joe or whatever, during that yes. run. That's going to continue as a G.I. Joe Forever type book, kind of like X-Men Forever. I'm, I'm going to get it. Even though it's going to have neon ninjas up in the piece, I will still buy it. <laughs> Dude, I was just flipping through this, okay? Just flipping through, all right? <laughs> and we got a story with Stalker, Quick Kick, and Snow Job. Get caught in like and so, doing some kind of me- mission and thrown in some kind of in, in some kind of like uh, prison camp. 
Mm-hmm. It's like a, a four issue story right there, dude. You got you got raptors in it again. <laughs> He's chasing Cobra Commander's son for some reason. I don't know because I didn't really. I'm not. You know, I was just going through it. And it, dude, it's just it's it's, it's insane. Oh, ni- ninjas and knee pads, dude. That's what this whole thing is. See the you know the excitement from you is oozing out of my headphones. I mean, you are so hyped about this book right now. Chuckles. <laughs> no, he is not in there. Trouble bubbles. <laughs> Wait you want to know if there's a trouble bubble? Trouble bubble, page 78. <laughs> oh, does Chuckles have the Hawaiian T-shirt on? You know he does. You know that's right. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, for no reason at all, they stop this big like story arc. Oh, these four Joes are <laughs> somewhere in Eastern U- Europe at a treatment camp. But let's do this one-off issue about the gi joe that was a uh astronaut oh. I, I can't remember his name but i am oh my lord one-eyed ninjas shit this is just this is the bomb you will not believe what i found yesterday while um digging through uh, the uh, closet and I popped open one of the boxes because I didn't know what was in it because I was looking for I was looking for I think like I accidentally left some comics in one of my one of these uh, toy boxes and I found my quote-unquote limited edition 100th Batman from Kenner have you what yeah you remember when Kenner was like putting out all types of Batman action figures whether it be the animated series or Legends of the Dark Knight and all that stuff I used to have like a slew of those I mean a slew like snowsuit batman mcdonald's batman long john silver's batman you know all of them and the 100th edition came out and i remember my dad got it for me as like a birthday gift or whatever and i put it away little did i know i put it away in this box let me tell you something that is the shiniest looking batman i have ever seen in my entire life i mean he is shining i mean it's like a glow bu- a glow bug type shine and he's got the biggest batarang in the history of Batman toys, the bank, the 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 batarang is the size of my thumb. Mm. I mean, dude, he could rip a car in half with this batarang. But it's awesome, uh-huh. though. I, I love it though. It's super shiny, but I think it's awesome. But I I just wanted to bring up that that bit of geekery. All right. Well, I was actually uh, listening to last night. I was listening to uh, Murd and Peter Rios talking. Uh, they they have a um, like a footnote. Uh, the, the crisis tapes. Yeah. And they're going issue by issue through through Crisis, uh, the original Crisis, that is. They were talking about the new multiverse, and Murd doesn't really like it. Now, why is that? See, I, I haven't listened to this episode, so why does he not like it? And Because um, it's kind of just thrown together, like all the Elsewhere stuff that sold uh, well. Each one of those got their new Earth now. Mm. You know what I mean? Like in, in Earth 2 is... Earth 2, but it's not the real Earth 2 because it's uh, they have their own Power Girl, but our Power Girl is from Earth 2, but it's not that Earth 2. It's the original Earth 2 from the first multiverse, and my head just exploded, and I'm <laughs> bleeding out of my eyes. <laughs> and uh, he, he brought up a good point, and I, and I knew that you would want to talk about this, so that's why I texted you right away. And uh, Do you think that DC is kind of throwing away an opportunity here with the properties that they just 
uh, collected, like the Red Circle and uh, the Milestone um, characters. Now, instead okay. of in, instead of making them like an Earth two or three or four, like they did with the Charlton characters and the uh, the the Marvel family was Earth X, I think it was or whatever, and then they had like Earth S, where you know uh, I forgot who it was was on Earth S. Freedom Fighters, maybe? Possibly. Anyway, so, um, you know, instead of trying to just, oh, they've been here all along, but you didn't know about it type of thing, you know? My whole thing is is that you they bought these heroes, or they're using these heroes, and I'm like, if you're going to use them, you might as well incorporate them into the DC proper first. And if you want to put them out later somewhere else, that's fine. But when Milestone started, you know, Milestone was the, the uh, Dakotaverse, and the only time they ever ever interacted with uh, Earth-1 DC or whatever was the whole thing with just the Superman, like Superman, Superboy, and Steel. That was it. There was no other interaction with the DC universe. It was just Superman. And then that was like a little short thing, and then that went away. I would be happy to see Milestone interact within the DC universe. I feel they need to be there. I feel the Red Circle characters need to be there, but there's this big Pandora box right now. You you got all these Earths. It's just how do you incorporate and balance all all this stuff to where people actually give a damn. And then, like, you know, because, like, if the Milestone characters go away, I don't think they'll be coming back to DC ever again if they go away again. You know what I mean? And but well, you, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Finish your thoughts. Oh, no, sorry. no, no. Trust me. It's already sailed past my head. <laughs> it's already sailed past. I, if, I, if I catch it again, I'll bring it up. Go ahead. As, as cool as it is to see, like, Batgirl punch the web in the face and then Oracle put him in his place... Mm-hmm. It, it, as cool as that is, it's like well, why? Why don't you establish them on their own before you have them? Like you know, the Inferno is fighting Green Arrow, Black Canary for uh, a couple of issues in the backup or whatever, and you got this and that. Like, uh, or why don't they do like like they did in the eighties? Dig this, okay? This is blow your mind. <laughs> you ready? I'm ready. Why don't you do a Earth One, Earth Two version where you could? Do like the red circles in the DC universe proper, and then you could do like the shield from World War II, the original web, the original what was it? Hooded justice. <laughs> um, in a world where justice wore no hoods, <laughs> see, one man had the balls to make a difference. <laughs> see, you could po- you could possibly first off, that's a kick-ass voiceover. But anyway. Um, <laughs> You could you could possibly do that, but the biggest fear is, and I, and I know it's a big fear for DC. It's just like, well, we got these heroes. If they give, if we give them their own Earth and have them stand alone, people may not mess with them right now. That's their biggest fear. And then, like, if people don't mess with them, the books don't sell. Then they've bought these characters for nothing. Although I still think that these characters could really make a big push if you sold them. If DC, let's say DC had their own digital comics program, let's say DC had something like Panel Fly. Where you could buy all the DC comics you wanted on the digital chi- on the digital tip, right? And like the books were cheap. Then you would ha- have more people willing to take a chance on heroes that they know have existed for eons, but weren't really incorporated into the DC universe. Right. And, you know, folks would be willing to take a shot on it. I know I would. It's it's a risk to do anything standalone with these characters right now. There has to be some sort of interaction within the DC universe. I mean, I was glad to see Static and Titans, even though the book isn't the greatest right now. To me, even like when Static first came out, I'm like, this dude needs to be in the Teen Titans. And this is before they brought him over. 
He right. needs to be in the Titans. He's perfect for the Titans. Why can't he be in Teen Titans? But he's there now, which is fine. He would be on the book when, when the book's not really that good. It's kind of like when Chris Rock went to Living Color and nobody gave a damn about Living Color. <laughs> and he was in there for, for like, was, he was in Living Color for all like 20 minutes. He did the same character. Sure did. And it just, it wasn't, it wasn't funny. Oh, did you have that Teen Titans book that you wanted to talk about? You know I did. Go ahead and talk to me about it. All right. Here we go. Do-do-do! I got two awesome comics. I have Teen Titans, number 48. Not the new Teen Titans or the current series Teen Titans, number 48, but the old school Teen Titans from 1977. And now, could you, could you tell me who was on that team, sir? Oh, this <laughs> right off the right off the bat. I love this book because on the cover, you got Two Face. He's got a a gun up to this lady's head who looks like the Joker. Okay, who is Dula Dent? And you got Robin and Mal, Wonder Girl, Kid Flash, and Speedy. Right. Okay. Before we continue, I have a question. How come the only brother on the team has a crowbar for a weapon? He has a horn. On the cover, it looks like a crowbar. It's a horn. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Th- thank thank and- you for clarifying that. I, I appreciate that because that always confused me because I didn't I don't I didn't read old school Titans. And uh well this makes me want to actually go like uh, hit Powerball so I could buy the the original Titans uh archive editions. A nice hardcover because this is just it's too bad to pass up. So uh, they have, like, uh, around the Teen Titans logo, they have Robin's head with his name, Speedy's mouths, Kid Flash's Wonder Girls, and Dula Dent's head, but it says the Harlequin on it, right? She's not known as the Harlequin until the last page of the issue, man. <laughs> and that was the big that was the big surprise. Well, you told me on the cover. <laughs> anyway. Uh. So you open this bad boy up, and right away there's an advertisement on the inside cover, and it's Batman and Robin and some woman with eagle wings and seagulls trying to steal the Statue of Liberty, and they gave her hostess cupcakes, and the army dropped bombs on pigeons and shit, and everybody's fine. Then, (laughs) so, all right, it opens up with Two-Face, and uh, he's yelling at, Dula Dent and Robin, who are tied together in chairs, and he's saying, I can't be your father. I have no daughter. That's how it starts off. Okay. So the Joker's daughter is really Two-Face's daughter at this point, but she's not called Two-Face's daughter or the Joker's daughter at this point. And she said that she became a superhero because she wanted to, to hold up the law like her, like the Dent family did back in the day before he went cuckoo bananas. And then they have like he's actually talking to himself in in, in uh, two different panels, and one is the it's a it's a profile of his regular face, and then the other one is his green icky face, and they're yelling at each other, which is kind of cool. But anyway, what he's going to do is he's going to blow up shit, and he planted a bomb in two different museums, one in New York and one in uh, Gotham. So they got to figure it out. But anyway, he's leaving, so Robin gets loose, but. 
He and he's about to whoop uh, Two Face's ass, but Two Face turns around. And he goes, "I'm not stupid." And you know what he did? What? He glued their asses to the seat. No, he didn't. He glued their asses to the seat. Who wrote okay? this issue? <laughs> Al Mulgrew. No. No. Uh, Bob Roskus. Okay. And it was uh, drawn by Jose Delblo and Vince Coletta. No, no, no joke. Or as da- or as David A. Price from 11, 11 o'clock Comics says, Vinny fucking Coletta. <laughs> shout, shout outs to King DAP, David A. Price. Love you. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So Robin's like, all right, dude, you think you're tough? You glued my ass to a seat? Well, dig this. And he flips. He stands up and flips around and whoops two faces ass with his own kid. <laughs> He just smacked her right in his face, and then she's like, do it again, and she's kicking him in the teeth and shit, and he runs away, and then finally the chair breaks, and Robin, but see, this doesn't make sense, because they glued his ass to the seat, but the chair breaks, and he gets off the chair. Wouldn't your ass still be um, glued to the part of the chair? Yes. Right? Okay. No, that doesn't happen. So now we cut back to the Teen Titans headquarters, which is at Gabriel's home. I can't say this out loud. Gabriel's horn, giggity. <laughs> Their new discotheque headquarters in Farmingdale, Long Island. Well, wait, wait a minute. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Hold up. Discotheque. This says disc. The word discotheque is written on the comic. Discotheque headquarters. Why would you? Never mind. Go ahead. I'm. I'm not even going to question it. I'm not. Please continue. Please. In a world where people thought discotheques were dead. One group of teenagers made it a headquarters. Hey, find that Bee Gees album, guys. <laughs> so anyway, dude, dig this, right? There's something wrong with Aqualad. I don't know what it is, but they literally have him in half a fish tank. What? Yeah, they have him in half of he's laying down in half a fish tank, <laughs> and the water's only filled up to his ears, and they want to know why he's not responding. Because the part where he breathes water, dumbass, ain't in the water. <laughs> all right, so you got him in a coma, and they're all talking and stuff. And then, um, and I did, I never realized it, but Speedy is just a dick. <laughs> he is. He's just a dick, and it's he. He doesn't like the Joker's daughter. He thinks she's really a bad guy and all this other stuff. But he just everything out of his mouth. You just want to slap him. So now, um, listen to this. He's like the. the <laughs> The phone rings, and Mal thinks it's his girlfriend, Karen, but it's not. It's Robin. He goes, Robin, what's shaking? And Speedy takes the phone away from him, and he goes, let me talk to that bird brain. He goes, the ever-wise teen wonder calling to give us your latest joke? And Robin just yells at him. He's like, knock off the sarcasm. This is a business call. (laughs) Two-Face is planning to blow up Gotham and New York off the map. So they're about to run, and they're on their way running. And who all of a sudden, out of the sky, who's there? Malcolm Duncan is going nowhere. He's about to be stung by the bumblebee. Ah, uh, good old Karen Beecher. All right. All and right. That, well, you're not supposed to know. Spoiler alert. Hello. Oh, my bad. You're not supposed to know who it is. But oh. that fool just looks at it and goes, who? <laughs> <laughs> and he blows his horn and nothing happens. And then she um she has a honey gun and she covers his horn in honey. Giggity. <laughs> <laughs> And he's sitting there. She's whooping his ass, and he's going, "This voice sounds familiar." Hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, Speedy comes. He shoots a uh, 
he shoots a, a net at her and she she just like electrocutes it off and then Wonder Girl throws her lasso around her and dig this dude. She shoots stingers at Wonder Woman and where are they coming out of? I mean Wonder Girl, you mean? Yeah, at Wonder Girl. Where are they coming out of? Her, her butt. Her ass, that's right. That is so wrong. It it's awesome. And then Kid Flash does a tornado thing and, and she has this this weird ass thing she hits and it makes a big buzzing noise and it makes everybody drowsy hmm. and they all fall asleep. Is that the end of the story? Hell no, dude. That's only like page 10. We got- Wait a minute. You've told a lot <laughs> for only being 10 pages. See, decompression my ass back then. They made sure they gave you like three years worth of books in one issue. Oh, yeah, dude. And for a dollar, you could get a bionic hand. I don't even know what that means, but there's an ad in this book right here for it. And a Batman bike horn. And um, they got ads for Ragman series and the DC special starring Batman, Aquaman, and Timberwolf. Oh, and not only not only that though, but in that that issue, you could also uh, possibly you could be in the Superman movie. I didn't get that far yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. If if you're talking about issue forty nine, if that's the one you're talking about, if you look at the front cover, look toward the forty eight. Oh, you're still on forty eight. Okay, cool. When you get to forty nine, then you'll know. Never mind. Oh, well, fortunately, we don't have it. We we go from here to 51. But anyway. Okay, sorry. And then there's an ad for, listen to this crossover, Justice League 44. Plastic Man, Congorilla Cong- Bill, the Black Hawks, Challenger of the Unknown, Robot Man, Jimmy Olsen, Lois Lane, the original Vigilante, teaming up with the Justice League. That is the craziest team up ever. Yep. I-, I want that comic. And then there's uh, sh- an ad for... The Changing Man, number one. Go, Kirby. Go, Kirby. Go. And then, uh, so Robin goes to New York, and he goes to a museum in New York. And Kid Flash and Mal meet him there. And there's missiles that are coming there. And all of a sudden, Mal can blow his horn his, his horn that's full of honey. And he transforms everybody to go up to the to the roof cause of, of the museum. Because I guess Kid Flash just doesn't run fast enough. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's missiles on top. And then they stop uh, Mal. Dig this. Mal with his horn, dude. Blow, Mal, blow. That's what they yell. And uh, he does. And the missiles stop. They stop in midair and go in the ocean. Oh, my God. It doesn't even. It, they, they stop in midair and they don't even turn around. Right. They just fly backwards. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, you know what? It's comic books. I'm not even going to ask how is that possible. I'm just going to run with it. They fly backwards. I'm, I'm anyway. I'm just, right. just going to run with it. I'm not. I'm not. No, I'm just going to run. With you it. have to. I have. Yes. Yes. And then uh, JD does not stand for Jack Daniels in this book. It stands for Joker's daughter. Mm-hmm. And Speedy and Wonder Girl show up at the other museum. And uh, what do you call it? Speedy's breaking her balls. He's just being a real dick. And then <laughs> so they Robin goes in he says look we stopped the one in new york so they went up to the roof because they thought it was going to be there but then they realized my dad's two-faced he does the opposite so where are these missiles going to come from where sean where are they going to come from donnie i I don't know the floor of the museum (laughs) because that would be the opposite of the roof of the museum good old bob um, rizakis and here we go right so they have to get down quick to, to the basement. So Joker's daughter has roller skates. And for some reason, Wonder Girl thinks this is the best invention in the world. And she's very, roller skates? But how? <laughs> I guess nobody told her about when Iron Man used to have roller skates, huh? 
And and she's swinging on her magic lasso going down, right? Mm-hmm. And Joker's daughter is skating down in a museum that has no fucking stairs. It's all one big spiral ramp, like a parking <laughs> garage. And what's coming out of this, the floor but missiles? And Wonder Girl, she loops them up in her magic lasso. And what happens next? The rockets, the rockets uh, ignite. Wait. Oh. Joker's daughter pulls out a pipe of her own. <laughs> okay. And for some reason, she shoots these bubbles out of this pipe. And, and she says, loop your magic lasso around it as I float super pop bubbles to the ceiling and blow out an exit for the bomb. So she came all the way down to the basement to blow bubbles to the roof. <laughs> And then she asked Speedy to to help her with an explosive arrow. And then Wonder Girl flips the magic lasso so they land in the Atlantic Ocean and explode. It would have been cheaper for the city of Manhattan if they just let the fucking building explode. Okay? Because there was nobody in it. Anyway... So now uh, Mal and Kid Flash and Robin uh, have Two-Face in custody. Never, never saw him. Never saw them take him into custody, but he has him in handcuffs right now. Mm -hmm. At the discotheque, here we go. The big thing is Joker's daughter comes out, and she's, she's in a kooky little outfit, and her name is, from now on, I'm the Harlequin. No shit. We saw it on the cover. <laughs> Now, listen, this is the best ever. The last two panels of this book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Aqualad is laying in a tank with his mouth wide open, unconscious. And Robin says, and I quote, how come nobody refilled Aqualad's water tank? <laughs> Are you serious? Oh, no, it gets better. Listen, Speedy turns around and says, what do you mean? No one told us we had to do that. Mm -mm. And Robin said, Aquaman said so, but nobody was listening. <laughs> and because of it, Aqualad is dying. The end. Well, can't somebody just go and get a couple pictures and just dump it in? Some, those, those last two panels sound super dramatic. The only thing they need to go do is just go get a hose and fill up the tank. I got to ask you one question. Okay. Who puts the heroin addict in charge of taking care of the dead guy? <laughs> <laughs> the dying guy, right? Yeah, you, good point. Okay? Okay. <laughs> this is why I love talking to you, Donnie, because you can find these comics... And as silly as they are, this is what comics is all about. These dudes, these fools blew up a multi-million dollar building and then got to sit at a discotheque and just chill out. See, that, that, <laughs> see Bob, Bob Rosakis was crazy, man. Now, see, this is funny. I got this article from back issue number 33 from April 2009 that talks about the Teen Titans, um, specifically during that run of that issue that you're talking about because... As a matter of fact, I'll read the paragraph before I get to the quote-unquote revival. It says here, actually, I need to give props to the person that wrote the article because I sure as hell didn't write it. The article is written by John 
Schwerian. All right. Just want to make sure I gave him props. Now, it says here, at any rate, the Teen Titans series was canceled in 1973 with the characters wandering around in a fantasy world. The team apparently broke up with the individual members all going their separate ways. Now, if I remember right, Carmine Infantino was the editor during that period of time, and there were a lot of issues with in, uh, with Infantino as editor because he always conf- conflicted with a couple of writers, except Bob Haney, who would write stories like during the 60s and 70s. He'd write stories like it was in the 50s still. And Infantino had issues with uh, writer Steve Skeets, if a memory serves me right. And Skeets was the better writer. He was more topical, uh, more focused, did all types of things. So it's kind of cool stuff but anyway to the run that you're referring to, the Titans revival. Three years passed. Carmine Infantino had taken up penciling again at rival Marvel Comics. Jeanette Kahn was the new head honcho at DC. Kahn wasted no time at canceling series she felt were unsuccessful and looked to bring back classic series from the past. Teen Titans would be one such title. Initially, the writing chores were assigned to Paul Levitz, but, bef- but before the first issue was completed, Levitz had moved on to other series. Enter Bob Rosakis. By 1976, like DC, America, too, had undergone great change. The country wanted to forget the controversies of Vietnam and Watergate. The focus had changed from civil disobedience to social integration. Emphasis was now placed on the desegregation and women's liberation. The bicentennial came at a time when Americans wanted to party to focus on recreation and self-indulgence. Social activism had given way to escapism and the generation that changed America had given way to the me generation. While primarily unintentional, Teen Titans under Bob Rozak has clearly reflected this attitude. With an emphasis on fun, entertaining stories, Rozak has moved the Titans into the fad-driven 70s with traditional superheroics mixed with topical references. Initially, the team consisted only of Robin, Kid Flash, Wonder Girl, Speedy, Aqualad, and Mal, with Lilith, Gnark the Caveman, <laughs> I got something to say about him in issue 51. Hawk and Dove, nowhere to be seen. Uh, Rosakis explains the new setup. The market for superheroes, particularly teams, was growing again, so he thought, so the thought was, why not bring the Teen Titans back? As to the, ori- as to the team roster, we were going for brand recognition. The original team was the, was the group older readers would expect to see and the one new readers would recognize. We certainly followed the continuity of the original series as best we could, but I tried to keep the characters more in line with the rest of the DC Universe than they were the first time around. Teen Titans returned with issue 44, cover dated November 1976. Now, i got a couple other things to talk about real quick. It says here, the addition of Karen Beecher, a.k.a. Bumblebee, to the team team added (laughs) added a new dimension to the series. Not only was she female, but she was also African-American, a wizard technology, and capable of holding her own in a fight. Whether intended or not, the inclusion of Bumblebee reflected affirmative action and the equal rights movement, both major issues facing the country at the time. The Bumblebee was my creation, Rosakis proclaims proudly. I had introduced Karen as a girlfriend for Mal, so we wanted to keep the new member in the family. And then he says, there's an amusing story about her name. Len Wein told Julie Schwartz that we should name her the Black Bee, following the odd idea of the time that all African-American heroes and villains needed to have black (laughs) in their names, i.e. Black Lightning, Black Goliath, because he thought bumblebees were too cuddly. I told Lynn he was the only person I ever met who thought bumblebees were cuddly and convinced Julie to keep the original name. I told you. See, people always think I'm crazy. I told people 
they did that black shit on purpose. I told nope. people. Oh, nope. sorry. Black Knight. Damn it. <laughs> okay, okay. Oh, 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 wait, wait. I got another one. All right. This is this this is obscure. You're gonna have to look this one up. Mm-hmm. White gorilla? Wasn't that a black dude in a gorilla outfit? And he wasn't he a bad guy no, for Black I Panther? I don't, I don't know if he was named White Gorilla, but I do know who you're talking about for fact. That's the dumbest costume I ever seen in my entire life. He Every- basically just skinned an entire gorilla and just stepped inside of it. Right. I'm he fought Cap a couple of times too. Cap had that League of Super Villains like Copperhead and Viper, like all the snake villains and and he was on that squad too. I'm like, I don't understand this. You all look ridiculous. Please move on. But no, one last thing. Um, the plots often featured then hot concepts like skateboarding with, char- <laughs> with, with characters like the Rocket Rollers and disaster films with people like Captain Calamity. The Teen Titans moved out of their... 51 is Captain Calamity. <laughs> the Teen Titans moved out of their old cave hangout and set up quarters in Gabriel's Horn, a discotheque financed by Bruce Wayne with which booked performances by the band Great Frog with with Speedy on drums and Mal Duncan on horn. They were teenagers, says Rosakis. So why shouldn't they be involved in things that teens were doing? I'm sorry, that teens of the time were doing. Teen Titans number 46 even went so far as to make a topical pun as the Titans exposed rockers Peter and Laura McCarthy of the Flyers as mm-hmm. also being folk singers Ricky and Kathy Woodworker a poke at popular bands, Paul McCartney and Wings, and the Carpenters. I'll tell you what. If if you guys like my little rendition of the Teen Titans, throw something on the forums because I think in my collection I have some beat copies of number, this one here, number 43, 45, uh, where Mal gets into a street fight and it's a horn against a chain. Mm-mm. Yeah. And then, of course, number 51. But I was just looking this up, man. I was like, wow, these are worth a little bit of money, huh? Yeah. Those Titan books back then, before they you know, reintroduced the series again on, as the new Teen Titans with Wolfman and Perez, those uh, issues before that did not have high print runs. Yeah. And plus it started and stopped so many times. This article in Back Issue, once again, Back Issue number 33, um, April 2009, this uh, article about Titans is fantastic because it tells you every time it starts and stops, all the editorial problems and the, and the problems that writers had with the editors. I had no idea Car- uh, Carmine Infantino served time as an editor. No idea. Oh, yeah. There were, issue- there were issues between, between writers and Infantino. I have such an appreciation for the old storytelling method. I'm not saying because like a lot of those stories were dated and definitely don't read great today. But as far as the method of I'm giving you as much as I can in X amount of pages to get you so hype that, oh, yeah. that you're going to come back next month. I might leave you. I might leave you on a cliffhanger. You know, I might you know might not leave you on a cliffhanger, but I might leave something in the background to make you think and come back for this next issue. Plus, I'm going to sell you with a kick-ass cover. So I, that's that's the thing I, you know, I, I love most about comics, especially comics that do stuff like that. Don't get as much of that nowadays because we, you know there's this whole tendency of, well, we're writing for the trade, yeah. which I'm like, you can give me six standalone issues, and, and if you put them in a collection, I'll still buy them because there's right. always some, some sort of underlying theme. Well, you know what? Case in point of that, dude, is Jonah Hex, okay? The trades of that sell great. 
You know, I have, I think, up to the first 15 issues or something, and I had to cut it because of, you know, monetary issues. I plan on going back, and when I hit, like, New York Comic Con or even the one that we're having here in Connecticut, if they have, like, a $5 trade bin or 50% off trade bin, that's what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get every single one of those bad boys because that's just fun comics right there, you know. And a lot of them are one and done. I think there's only like maybe he did an origin one that was four issues or four to six issues maybe, and then there was a couple that might have been like two issue storylines. But for the most part, they're all done in one. To do the fantastical that can't even translate well in a vi- in like a movie form, to me is fantastic. Right. Because it can't be covered anywhere. It can't really be. It can't be covered anywhere else. I just find it so fascinating, and I love I mean, it. Just look at this issue alone. Mm-hmm. You had Two Face getting his ass kicked by Robin beating him with his own kid. Okay, you had <laughs> Mal's horn was useless because it was covered in honey. Who has a honey gun, dude? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> a chick shooting shit out of her ass. I mean, not well, not shit out of her ass, but stuff out of her ass, and and you had and people forgot to change the water on their best friend like he was a fucking goldfish. They wanted a carnival. <laughs> this is a dude you've been hanging out with now for ten years. Yes, and you forgot to change the water, and you, and you let and you let the druggie be responsible That's right. for it. That's right, because everybody knows heroin addicts are most responsible people on the planet. <laughs> See, because nobody gave the Titans that Green Arrow, Green Lantern issue with the Neil Adams artwork. If they'd have gave it to him, said, "Look, take notes." You I know, got the trade, man. You could borrow it. I, you know, you got problems. Read this. Don't let him do anything. <laughs> because, but see, that, but see, that's also the silly shit they would do with comics back then too. They, you know, they'd be like, "Well, didn't you hear about this?" And they run to the store and pick up a copy of the comic. And say, "Hey, read this." You oh know, yeah. They would do. That. I mean, not figuratively but they would just do silly stuff like that i used to love that even though it didn't make any sense and you know what issues in books like this and stories like this this is this is fun comics not every comic has to be you know and don't get me wrong i love serious storylines i love my comics man that i have today Mm -hmm. but these issues are fantastic because it's just fun comics and that's why i love power girl and i tell palmiati on facebook every chance i get how much i love that book do is i want to go and find like in a 50 cent bin remember when marvel was doing through like all their annuals it would be a continuous storyline like a what was it a assault on atlantis or some shit like that no atlantis attacks yeah and then there was like the high evolutionary one. Oh, not the evolutionary war dude dude save yourself seriously save yourself the money okay i don't even care if it's 50 cents per per annual i had the evolutionary war as a kid, I read it again and again and again. The only reason why I read it is because Black Goliath showed up and got to do something for like the first time in a decade. Dude, it's not worth it. It's it's a le- it's a lesson learned, okay? For, 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 for the longest time, and this was a rule, for the longest time, you never read an event or a book that had the following characters in it because normally they would not be represented correctly or would be written poorly. High Evolutionary and The New Gods. For the longest time, like you remember that min- that mini series, mini series Genesis. Yeah. As soon as you saw High Father, what was the first thing you did? You closed that book and walked away. 
I, you know, I've never, ever, ever been a fan of the New Gods at all. I love the New Gods. I love them, but only certain people can write them. I'm not saying that everybody can write Superman and everybody can write Batman, but there are a lot of people that say, you know, if I got the shot, I can do it. New Gods, you know, that Kirby concept stuff is deep. You got to be prepared to, like, get dirty if you're going to write those characters. And some people just can't get a feel of them. I mean, for the longest time, those are the two red flags. Feels like high evolutionary was involved or the new guys were involved, I ran for the hills. And even John Ostrander in um, the uh, short-lived Heroes for Hire series, which I love, which had a Power Man, Iron Fist. Oh, shoot. And they normally had like a rotating uh, crew. Was that lo- the one with like She-Hulk and the Black Knight? Black Knight showed up for a bit. She-Hulk yeah. showed up for an issue. I love that entire run. But there is a momentary pause where they have to deal with the high evolutionary. And it rolls over into Quicksilver's book. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Quicksilver I, had a book? Dude, there was a period of time Marvel, in, in, at Marvel, everybody had a book. Okay? Everybody. Quicksilver had a book for a while, too. Yeah. That had to be before Quesada. Um, I think so. I think that was before Quesada. I can't, I'm not 100% sure, but yeah, Quicksilver had a book. And, and oh, uh, all right. Was that around the time with the Busick Perez Avengers? Is yes. that around that time? Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think there was a crossover in that, too, I think. Oh, yeah. All right. So, um, so yeah, but, and it was an okay, it was okay storyline, but it's just that how high evolutionary thing. And I just, I, it just, ugh. maybe it's because back when, um, Spider Man had an animated cartoon, they had the Spider Man series, and then, you know, in the, in the 90s, and after it ended, A.V. Arid and some other people said, hey, we need a new Spider-Man cartoon. Oh, uh, what was it called? Uh, I can't remember the, the actual title per se right now. But what they did is they said, you know what? Let's take Spider-Man. We're going to accidentally put him on a space shuttle. that gets blasted into another dimension, and his villain will be the high evolutionary. <laughs> done. Completely and utterly done. I said, yeah, we're finished here. I wish I could remember the name of that series right now. It was just bad. It, it, it was called Spider-Man Unlimited. That's what it was. Spider-Man Unlimited. And it was like, I think like they made 13 episodes. And, you know, they changed those Spidey's costume and whatnot. I'm like, okay, that's cool. That's fine. But yeah, dude, when your villain's the high evolutionary, you just really need to walk away. And <laughs> and, oh, and they brought and they brought some carnages and some symbiotes into it. And I'm just like, nah, I'm I'm just gonna go chill out with my friends, man. I'm, I'm not I'm not fooling with this. This is bullshit. I'm not fooling with it. You but, just you just turn into the maid from the Family Guy. You're just like, no, no, no. <laughs> exactly. I just, no. I, I just Mr. Pryor, no here. <laughs> Need lemon pledge. This no Mr. Pryor spider me. <laughs> stop it. Stop no. it. Stop it. And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is available via iTunes, or you can go to pkdmedia.com to get our show, check out our form, and read comics like Mercury and the Murd, XO one on the Rock Solid Steel Bots, Agents of Cult, and Luke Foster's The Gang from the Store, six days a week for free. And if you're on iTunes or our forum board, drop us a line or email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. Until then, dream big and hustle hard.